left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I have to have investment criteria so that it's really easy to separate out. A 15% minimum annual return is one thing, but I also look for you know an asset where the, the sponsor has a track record of returning capital quickly, a track record or a plan to get my capital back quickly. I like appreciating assets and something that has a built-in tax advantage and has to be something that you can use leverage against. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. I'm Kenny Wolf, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our guest today is Chris Odegaard, the prolific investor. Chris worked in corporate America for over 30 years before going full-time in alternative investments. His goal now is to help improve the financial lives of Americans one blog article at a time through his prolific investor blog uh, website. And that mission lines up very well with Left Field Investors because we are trying to do the same. So, Chris, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. It's going to be a lot of fun, I can tell already. Yes, sir. Well, what I'd like to start with is just kind of your, your journey. I know you started in corporate America, but if you could kind of talk about the investing you were doing then and what you're doing now and, and how you got from one place to the next. Sure. I mean, uh, today I'm the prolific investor, but I, always, I wasn't always that guy. I was pretty much a conventional investor. You know, most of my adult life, I learned 
what my parents knew, which was to go to school, get a job with a with a pension and benefits and work there forever. And then someday way off in, you know, your 60s, you can retire someday. So that's that's all I knew. And, you know, it worked relatively well for me. I worked at the Boeing company for 33 and a half years. And when I look at that whole journey in, in its entirety, you know, there were ups and downs, but on whole, it was it was a really great time. I call it an MBA on steroids when I was a director of contracts, you know, doing airplane sales. But something happened to me, you know, in my mid 40s, I had a uh, an illiquidity event, which uh, if your listeners don't know what that is, that's when a lot of money leaves your account. And mine was uh, caused by a divorce. And so uh, 55% of everything I had and a whole bunch of cash flow instantly disappeared one day. And uh, the conventional path wasn't going to get me there anymore. And a friend that I had worked with had recommended a book to me. I bought that book and I sat it off to the shelf on my nightstand. And it it sat there for longer than I cared to admit. And I was on a business trip one day flying someplace. I said, I'm going to finish this book. And that book was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So the timing was really good. You know, I was living in what I call my van down by the river apartment. If you ever saw that skit on Saturday Night Live with Chris Farley. And, yeah. uh, and so I read that book and I was I was sitting in that little apartment and an ad came on the radio and it was Robert Kiyosaki's training company and they were having a local free seminar. And so I said, well, I gotta, I've got to go to that. I read the book. I was fired up. And on the day that um, I was supposed to go to that seminar, my 92 F-150, the same truck that's sitting right out here, <laughs> wouldn't start. And I managed to find a rental car company would drop off a car to me so I could make my way, you know, 25 miles, you know, north to go to this seminar. Anyway, the book launched me off into alternative investments. And, you know, it kind of started off like a lot of people, single family uh, rentals and then, uh, you know, some small multifamily things. And then I did notes. And now I'm pretty much a syndication guy. And I like to invest in syndications, uh, apartments, self-storage and uh, ATMs. Right about the time that I, uh, I don't like to use the retired, but I'm going to use a new phrase that I learned from my podcast. Right about the time that I fired the man and left the corporate world. I like that. That's fantastic. I, I started a blog because let me, uh, sorry, I forgot the most important part. You know, when I had this illiquidity event in my mid forties and I started investing in alternatives, nine short years later, I had made up all that 55%, multiplied it many times over and fired the man earlier than I would have even after that loss. So that inspired me to start the Prolific Investor blog and the YouTube channel and just try to let as many people as possible know that there's another way out there and you are not doing yourself the stock market and everything that's uh, you know traded publicly stocks bonds mutual funds those are conventional investments and that is one tiny segment of the marketplace and then everything else real estate self storage crypto energy private shares of small business the whole rest of the investing universe is where where the money is, but uh, most Americans and people all around the world invest in this little tiny, this area called conventional investments, which is all the publicly traded stuff. And that's not the right place to be. And so I'm trying to convince as many as people as possible to get out of there so that they can, you know, get to that place. I call it, you know, where work is a choice instead of a necessity. There's nothing wrong with working, but it's nice when you can do what you want to because it brings you satisfaction and not because it pays the bill. So that's a long answer to a very short question. No, that's great. That That is, um, I really like the the way you you phrase that. I guess one of the questions I have, because I was on the same path, single family homes, then some multis, I did some lending, and then I got into syndication. So where along that 
nine year journey to where you kind of became whole again, what was the most successful and, and why did you transition from one asset to other, another and end up at syndications and passive investing? It kind of like you, you mentioned, started with a single family rental and then it was a multifamily. And then I got a little, I got really kind of enamored with notes and buying, you know, performing and non-performing notes. And I did that for a while. And that was kind of, I wouldn't say sold, but it was presented as, hey, this, the notes are better than, you know, toilets and termites and tenants, all that kind of stuff. Well, it turns out notes were really hard. They were really harder than, than the rentals. And one day I, I was listening to something, I'm pretty sure it was on the uh, Real Estate Guys podcast. And they said, you know, every, you know, every so often, maybe once a year, you should look at your balance sheet and look at all the assets that you own and ask yourself this question. Hey, knowing what I know today, would I rebuy these assets again? And I looked and I looked at the financials on the, the single family rentals and the small multifamilies, and they were profitable. But I went, is that all the money that I made over the last 12 months on that? And I had had it up to here with notes. So after I heard that and I asked myself that question, answered it, it took me a couple of years to unwind everything, but I liquidated everything. And I wish I could pinpoint how and where, you know, I kind of got on the syndication path. I had started investing in once I got tired of the individual notes, I started investing in note funds. And that's when I started to see, wow, somebody else can actually do this better than I can. And maybe, you know, I can even make as much or more money. And um, it was on another podcast, I think, when the kind of the apartment syndications came onto the scene. And and that just kind of, and then, you know, every you can syndicate anything, you know, apartments, self-storage, ATM machines, you know, energy investments. And that's when I kind of realized that, I need to focus on, you know, selecting the management team, the syndicator who can, who really knows their business and just put my money alongside of theirs. And asset is kind of secondary. I love the um, thought of would I rebuy the assets because that's something I, I didn't think of it that way. But over the last couple of years, I've also liquidated most of my active investing, my single family homes, my multifamily assets, because what I found was that when I got into passive syndications is the performance seems to be about the same, plus or minus, but the headaches of passive investing are so much less. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Like you said, I do everything up front by vetting the syndicator and the deal. And then once I make the investment, I just let it go. So I, I really like the way, the way you said that. Now, you mentioned a bunch of different asset classes. Can you talk about maybe what your preferred asset classes are right now? I like apartments. There's, you know, you look at everything that's out there and, and we've all been through, we've all been through COVID. When I'm kind of looking at an asset class, I say, well, how is, how is this going to perform in a, in a really bad situation? With technology, according to some books that I've read, changing every 18 months, so many industries are affected or are going to be affected, but there doesn't appear to be anything on the horizon that is going to take the place of, of people needing to have a roof over their heads and a place to sleep at night. So that's kind of, you know, unaffected by that. People have found a way not to go to shopping malls and not go to, to go to office buildings, but everybody is still going home at night and they need a place to eat and sleep and, and spend time with their family. So I like that from that standpoint. And now that we've been through, hopefully, what's the worst of COVID, apartment buildings have performed very well. And I, I believe there was a report that I read, and this was a few years back, that it compared kind of real estate assets and which ones performed the best in downtimes. And I think going from memory, they were mobile home parks, 
self-storage and apartment buildings, kind of in that order, if my memory is correct. So I like the apartment buildings for that reason. To me, they're better than, uh, I like them better than mobile home parks because you get the huge depreciation, especially now with bonus depreciation with the apartment buildings that you don't get with the mobile home parks. And, and you know, I, I have done some self-storage. I just haven't really found a consistent, uh, you know, deal provider that I like to that's providing me stuff regularly on that. So those are those are pretty much my mainstays. And then also, I think everybody needs to be what I call swinging for the fences for the grand slam. You know, whether that's Bitcoin or some altcoin or you know, let's say you made a hundred small investments in it, it could be in the stock market or in crypto or whatever. And these these asymmetric risk return bets, you know. 99 of them could fail. And the one that makes it is the one that it'll could catapult you into a whole different area in terms of your battle, your battle sheet, your balance sheet. <laughs> so, you know, I believe in putting a, you know, a percentage of your portfolio and things like that and, you know, taking a swing for the, for the big time. And how do you find the taking the big swings? How do you find those kind of investments? One, you know, I, for the, I would say for the most part, I don't do uh, much in the way of stock market investing, but there is a company called Palm Beach Research. And there's a guy there named Tika Tawari, and I've heard of him. And, you know, that's what they do. They just say, hey, they focus on, you know, the what might be the next Microsoft or Amazon or, or whatever it is. And and some of these are publicly traded and some of them are Reg A plus, which are, you know, things that even non-accredited investors. So I just kind of make make those small bets along the way. And if I lose the money, if I do, but, you know, some of those will pay off. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I, saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly, and that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast, and it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California, and we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. So I want to back up just a little bit here. You were talking about apartments as your favorite asset class. Now, I hear a lot of people talking about cap rates, compression, and how apartments have they keep 
going up, up, up. So what, what makes you comfortable that to keep investing? Because I, I'm still investing in apartments as well, but I hear all of that and I'm doing it because it gives me cash flow. So the appreciation isn't as important, but is that kind of what you're looking at as well? It's really hard to, you know, you, you could find five different opinions on where the real estate market's going to go. And, and I've, you know, listened to as many different sources as I can. And what it comes down to me is that I believe that there's still a shortage of single family housing and apartment buildings that existed prior to COVID is going to take years to rectify. So that says that, you know, the values are going to go up, rents are probably going to go up. And again, with the, and I go kind of go back to the, who, who your syndicator is, you know, the syndicator that I use, you know, just some extremely smart people, and they've got a formula that has been proven. And if they can find stuff in this market that will work, they will buy it. If they don't, they won't. So when they, when they're out there doing what they do, and they say, "Yep, this building works," we can we can uh, we can force some equity in here, drive up the value, increase the cash flow and the value. Then then I'm in. You mentioned a syndicator. I assume do you use multiple syndicators for apartments, or do you have a few that you're favorites? I only use two. Uh, right now. Yeah, I'm only doing two. And I, one thing I like about your guys' website is you've got this whole list of syndicators. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of people on there that I'm not that familiar with. So I want to get more familiar with them. And I'll probably have to utilize some of the tools that you guys have got if I when I, you know, start going into looking at a, a new syndicator and analyzing the deals a little bit more carefully than I do now with the people that I've kind of been doing business with for years. Yeah, and I think we use uh, one, one of the same syndicators, and I, I really like their model as well. And and when I first got into this, I was putting everything into just that one syndicator. And since then, I've kind of changed my tune a little bit where I want to have diversification among sponsor, asset class, and geography. So I've, I've kind of branched out. And my, my goal is to find as many quality syndicators as possible, do a few exits with each, and then kind of concentrate after that rather than how I started out was concentrating at the beginning. So you also mentioned mobile home parks are not one of, well, they're, they're an asset you might be interested in, but the depreciation was something that was holding you back. Now, what's the difference between the depreciation on apartments and mobile home parks? Well, on you know the, the depreciation component, on any asset class is only the improvements, right? So it's everything above the ground. And most, at least what I understand about mobile home parks, the desire is to own the land and for the tenants to actually own all, all the homes. So I don't think there's a whole lot of depreciation available in the mobile home park space if you're following that model where the tenants, you know, pretty much own everything above the ground and you've just got the ground and the roads and all that kind of stuff. There's, I don't think there's a lot of depreciation there. You know, I've done some apartment syndications where put in $100,000 investments and I got $120,000 write-off in year one. You're, I don't think you're going to see that in the mobile home park space. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know that reducing, deferring, or eliminating taxes is one of the, the quickest ways to accelerate your wealth building. And I've heard you talk about that on another podcast about treating your investing like a business to reduce taxes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, from both an asset protection standpoint and taking advantage of the tax code, you know, I can't invest as, as Chris Odegaard. You know, I've got no asset protection, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get the benefit of taking expenses against the income from the investment. So you have to create a business structure, and so you, it's got to be Chris Odegaard Enterprises or whatever the whatever the name of your company is. And 
the tax law changed with one of the negatives of the Trump tax law is they changed the rules on the pass-through entities. So, you know, if you had a disregarded single member LLC, I personally experienced the loss of a whole bunch of business expenses because uh, the new tax law treated those entities differently. And basically, I had to restructure so that my company that was holding my assets was now a partnership. Then I was able to regain a lot of those business expenses back. So yeah, you have to treat, you know, you don't have to have a business, you know, a business in terms of a car wash or, you know, a 7-Eleven or whatever. Your business can be investing. You just have to treat it that way, get the right, uh, the counsel on how to structure yourself and and all your, you know, your assets need to be titled in the business name. And then you get all those tax deductions like businesses do. So can we talk a little bit more about that? Because my understanding is when you do this normal just LLC route and the right, everything passes through to you. So you don't necessarily, if it's not a partnership, you don't file a tax return for the LLC. All of that just flows right through to your um, tax return, your personal tax return. So you're saying instead you might do a partnership LLC where then you would file a separate tax return for that business and then you can apply different expenses to that business that you can't apply otherwise. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I I, uh, I forget what tax return, what tax year it was, but it was, you know, right around the time of the big tax law changes when Trump was president. And just like overnight with my path, like you said, with my pass through single member LLC that fl- flowed through to my tax return, a whole bunch of business expenses were no longer allowed. And it was a simple fix. We just changed the ownership. We didn't the, the the entity that owned the asset was the same, but instead of having it being a single having a, a single owner, it was owned by a partnership. So yeah, you I gained a bunch of the, uh, the I gained all the business expenses back, but I also gained an additional tax return at the par- partnership level. Okay, and and you mentioned disregarded entity. That just means a single member LLC, correct? Yes. Okay, because we see that uh, on a lot on the um, when you fill out a a form to, to sign up for your syndication. They ask if you're a disregarded entity or not. And every time I have to Google it and remind myself what a disregarded entity is. Yeah, I mean, it's disregarded for tax purposes. So it just, yeah, like you said, you have your own EIN, but it basically flows up to your personal tax return. So the difference is now with me, that disregarded, well, that entity, it flows up to a, a partnership that is the owner. And that, okay. and that's where the, the tax return is filed. And that's where I gained all those business expenses back. And it was a really, it was really an easy change. It was, it was just an assignment and saying, Hey, we're going to assign 5% of this entity over here. And it was, it was a pretty simple change. And that was a recommendation from your tax attorney or tax yeah, CPA. Yeah, yes. And that just tells you, you know, it makes sense to, you can't just have someone who's just filing your taxes. You have to have someone who is helping you come up with a strategy to eliminate, defer, reduce taxes uh, so that you, you you need a partner in that. And you can't just throw them your stuff on April 1st and say, hey, what can I do, right? You got to plan ahead. So do you have a good strategic uh, partnership with your accountant, I assume? The CPA has been one of the hardest team members to keep in play. I've gone through about probably four or five of them in the last 10 years and, and three firms. And a matter of fact, I switched uh, CPA firms because when I asked them, I said, how do I get these business expenses back, they did not have a solution. And so I left. It, it was, it, it, and you'd be shocked. It's a very well-known <laughs> high-profile company that I won't mention, but they, I don't know what happened, but I went over to another company and they said, oh yeah, we're, here's what we're going to do. ABC was done. Yeah. I'm sure it's difficult. I've, I've switched accountants a few times and it is 
it is a hassle trying to find somebody new, but it's something that's like we talked about. It's one of the best ways to build more wealth is to have the right tax situation set up. And you really need someone who's not only going to file your taxes, but also be a partner to help you find ways to reduce and defer and, and, and all that for your taxes. So that, that's great. You mentioned when we were talking before about the hierarchy of investors. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? That was interesting. Yeah. So after I started my blog, I think at the end of, end of 2018, you know, people said, well, Chris, what are you trying to do? What's your mission? What are you trying to do with this blog? And, and I started to visualize a hierarchy or a pyramid, if you will, where I've got the conventional investors down at the bottom and I'm trying to lift them up. And I, it reminded me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs from back in our school days. So, you know, we're at the bottom, you've got, you know, food, water, and shelter, and then you've got safety and security, and you get to the top of the hierarchy or pyramid, and you've got self-actualization. So, so I actually created a graphic that I call the hierarchy of investors, and not on the pyramid, but in the shadow of the pyramid, you know, where it's dark and damp and... <laughs> cold down there is where, where all the conventional investors are. And that's stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, you know, cash and CDs. And then as you step up on the pyramid, you get into the alternative investments, things like notes or all the various uh, subclasses of real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, business equipment like ATMs, private lending, uh, energy, or, or small, you know, private shares of small businesses. And so, and then I looked at, I looked at, I compared the conventional investments and the alternatives across 13 different categories and 11 of them are in favor of, of alternatives and a couple are neutral. And the only, the only advantage of conventional investments is liquidity. You can sell them or buy them instantly, but the ugly stepchild of liquidity is volatility. You know from investing in these in these private placements and syndications that a whole lot of the paperwork up front is telling you why not to do this and how you might lose all your money and because there's no market because these things are so illiquid and that's a big disadvantage. I actually think it's an advantage because the value of our stuff doesn't change because you can't sell it with the click of a mouse. So anyway, so I created this visual the hierarchy of investors to try and educate people about you know why they need to change uh, what they're doing. That sounds great. Can you talk about some of the different metrics you analyzed? You said there was a bunch of different metrics, ver- you know, comparing the two. Can you talk about just maybe the ones you think are most important? So there's a couple of them that I find really interesting. So one is insurability and the other is leverage. Think of all the assets as an investor and just as a consumer that you own. Some of them are really assets, but we're talking about things that, you know, pretty expensive things, things like cars, boats, motorcycles, motorhomes, and your apartment syndications. Those are insured by the syndicator. You can get insurance for every one of those things. You get insurance for your house and for your cars and your vehicles. So for your assets and expensive things, you can go out and get insurance. For some reason, insurance company, if you walked into your agent and said, hey, I'd like to buy an insurance policy to protect my... uh, my portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, they would laugh you out of the office. So why is it those types of assets are uninsurable? I think it says something about the asset class themselves. And how about leverage? You and I can go out and get a loan to buy our house, our car, our motorcycle, our boat, our motorhome. If we were doing real estate on our own account, we would get bank loans to syndicators. They use leverage. Now, if you walk into the bank and ask the bank guy if you can borrow 
uh, $20,000 to fund an, a $100,000, you know, if you can get an $80,000 loan to go buy $100,000 worth of stocks, funds, and mutual funds after they stop laughing. So think about bankers and insurance people. They're pretty smart in their field and they won't touch this asset class. So those are two of them. Asset protection, you know, as, as you move up the hierarchy, we do what we, we talked about. You set up an entity, you get asset protection, you get way better tax treatment investing in something, you know, like real, real estate. So, you know, the other thing is asset protection and one of them is financial education. You know, as you get on the, the pyramid or the hierarchy in the alternative investment space, you have to get better educated because you, if you want to go out and buy a fourplex and you walk into the bank office and you don't know what net operating income is or what your debt coverage ratio is, you, you're, you're not going to get a loan. And think about what's happening with people that get hired today into a W-2 job. Their employer automatically enrolls them into a 401k and predetermines what percentage of their pay is going to go into it and what mix of things they're going to be invested in with them having absolutely no knowledge or no education. So that's the conventional investment space. It requires no financial education. So in order to move up the hierarchy, you have to have education. And some of that is creating a business structure for asset protection and taxes. If you're a conventional investor and you're investing in the stock market, the S&P 500 is kind of the benchmark for the, you know, the U.S. stock market. And over its history, it's returned an annual return of, of slightly under 10%. Well, there have been studies done to look at what the average stock market investor's actual returns are. And because of the way they get in and out of the market and maybe emotional or training, they're somewhere around 5% before taxes and inflation. So that means after tax and inflation, the average investor could be making three to four percent. They're not even they're not even keeping up with inflation. And everything in the hierarchy, the alternatives that I do, there's nothing that I do that gets less than a fifteen percent, you know, average annual return. And then you start looking at tax benefits, and you can be in the thirty percent range. And so that's how that's how you get ahead. Uh, I think those numbers are just they sound too good to be true. So people go, oh well, then they must not be true. Well. You have to get some education and get out of the shadow of the hierarchy. Right. And, and also, it's interesting to me that they, you know, you started this um, talking about everything that was standard in all the, the world of alternative investments. And the crazy thing is, those few investments that are standard are the Wall Street ones that everyone, you know, they put their 401k into. Everyone thinks that's where the money is. And as you mentioned, you get paper gains from paper assets, but you have to find somebody to sell that asset to at a profit, you know, to make any money, as you mentioned earlier, you don't really care what the asset value is of the investments because you're just doing the cash flow. And on the back end, you know, the the cherry on top is the appreciation. So I, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Could you, you know, we talk about in our group about shortcuts, right? So using somebody else's expertise, getting a shortcut to uh, to figuring out where you're going and, and how you're going to get there. So could you, if you were mentoring a new passive investor, what are some shortcuts you could give them to kind of take the time off that you spent all this learning and doing stuff? But if you could kind of give them a shortcut, hey, do this, what would that be? Well, I guess it kind of depends on what age group are we talking about and where where is somebody starting? I mean, you know, all the stuff that I did that I didn't, that didn't work for me, that doesn't mean it didn't work for other people. Some people love, you know, getting their hands dirty, managing the, the, the single families and the multifamily. And, and there are people that just love notes. And so... Just because it didn't work for me doesn't mean it wouldn't work for 
for somebody else. I mean, I do through my website and I do have an alternative investment mentoring program that, that's on my site. And interestingly enough, and I'm very thankful that a lot of the people that are contacting me are younger people, people that are still in college or in their 20s and they're, they will have a 30-minute virtual coffee and they'll say, well, hey, how do I how do I learn more? How do I work with you? Or, or what would you do? And the way I answer the question is, if I knew back in my 20s what I know now, I would have never put any money in a 401k, maybe a Roth 401k, but I just wouldn't have done it. I would have started collecting single family rentals until I was able to move into syndications. And I've actually put together a, uh, I've got another one. This is becoming my superpower. I put together another one page visual, which takes a $30,000 investment in your typical 401k mutual funds, assuming an 8% return with a 4% employer match versus a $30,000 investment in a single family rental in the form of a down payment. And the numbers are shocking and overwhelming how much better the uh, single family rental is. And what people, you know, the argument for the 401k is, well, number one, is you get the employer match. And I call it, okay, you're getting the benefit of other people's money, somebody else's money. Well, what they don't realize is that with a single family rental, you get an employer match as well, or other people money. It's called somebody else paying off you that mortgage over the next 30 years. And that is worth more than the employer match. And then the other big selling point is the tax benefit of the 401k. You get this deferment of taxes, right? So you don't have to pay those taxes. Well, people don't realize that with a single family rental, you get a tax benefit too, and it's called depreciation. But you just, you don't, with the 401k, you get the tax deferral the year that you make the contribution. With a single family rental, you buy your house and you get a tax benefit every year for the next 26 and a half years. It's called depreciation, whether you buy another house or not. And when you put all those elements together and the fact that you got leverage, right? You put in your $30,000 and you're, you're controlling a $100,000 building instead of $30,000 and getting $30,000 worth of mutual funds. So I think kind of the original question is, what would I tell people? Now, don't put money in your 401k. Start collecting single family rentals. And it's not, you know, yeah, it's harder. It requires more education. But the, re- the rewards are overwhelming. And then you get to a point where you're an accredited investor and you can do other things that are a little bit more hands off if you want to. That's a really interesting comparison. I really like that. I think the only downside to that would be if the ease of collecting that down payment, right? If you're just putting in the 401k, it just slides right out of your paycheck every every two weeks and you might not even notice it. Whereas, you know, you'd have to set up a bank account to save the equivalent. But man, that's that's great advice uh, for, for young people to get going because it would, the way that you're looking at it is that people do the 401k because they can't, they can't give up that match. But it might make sense to give up that match because as you said, you're getting matched in other ways. So I think that that's a really neat way of looking at it. So you said you you mentor some passive investors. Can you talk about mistakes you might have seen passive investors make and, and things to avoid for someone uh, newly getting into this? I'll use myself as an example. So one of my first kind of ventures into a, into a syndication was a guy and don't go with some syndicator who's got a day job and he's doing some syndication on the side. Re- really, you really got to vet this, the, syndic- the syndicator. And um, people, uh, conventional investments ask me 
they have a double standard. They ask me questions that they about my investments that they would never ask about their own and say, well, how do you know that this guy isn't going to run off with your money? And I said, well, you know, the difference between me investing in this syndication and you investing in the stock market is I can actually meet and go have lunch or a beer with the person who's running this deal and get to know him. You're never going to meet anybody that's running the stuff that you're, you know, that you're investing in the stock market. And everybody assumes that because it, it made it on the stock market and through the SEC scrutiny that things can't go wrong. Well, well, they can. And uh, there was an attorney that I knew and he had a he had a big long checklist of all the things that you should look at with syndicators. And he had one really easy rule. He says, go out and have a meal or drink with them and watch how they treat the wait staff, the people from whom they have nothing to gain. Right. And he said, that's a, a, an indication. So get to know that syndicator and make sure it's not somebody who's just, it's a part-time thing for them. You want, you want a true professional that this is all they do. Right. I think that's super important because you, as you said, you want a professional, you want someone who does this for a, for a living, right? I mean, the reason I'm no longer doing active investing is because I wasn't good at it. I didn't want to manage the asset and I tried to hire people to do it for me and that didn't even work out. So now if I'm going to go and do syndications, I certainly want someone who does nothing but this to do it if, if I'm going away from actively managing it myself. So that makes complete sense to me. Can you talk about, I guess, mostly with apartments, your apartment investing, what are the a couple of metrics, key metrics that you look at that might make you jump on a deal or pass on a deal? Or what are some what are some things that you really focus on when you're looking at a particular deal? Yeah, I've gotten I've gotten kind of lazy because I've just been doing business with the same, you know, couple syndicators all the time that pretty much anything that they they put in front of me, I, I'm game for because they all have kind of a pro forma and the numbers all are kind of within such a narrow range. You guys in particular have got me thinking about diversification among syndicators. I just I just passed on a deal from one of the syndicators I use all the time just because it was another apartment building in a market that I'm already in, you know, multiple times. And I knew that there was another market coming out. So I waited. So unfortunately, I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of good stuff for that because I'm just kind of going with, uh, I'm, I'm riding the horse that I, that I chose kind of, so to speak. I did the same thing when I was, I was, I had such trust in the one syndicator that even now the same one, when they, when they come up with deals, I don't really evaluate them much. I, you know, we have a deal analyzer. I sometimes put them in there, but because they're so similar, the pro formas are so similar. They have 30 exits and they're all fantastic. That it, that isn't really necessary, but you know, I do. When I come on to a new syndicator, I really dig deep and look at some of those metrics because I just don't have the uh, you know the trust or the or the track record with them. Right. So that is something that that I'm I'm trying to get better at too. You know, a year ago before we we had our deal analyzer from Left Field Investors, there was no way to even you kind of just looked at the numbers and I'd be looking at the numbers. It looked good to me, but I didn't know what I was looking at. So now now that I have learned and know a little bit more just from being part of our community. It, it helps you kind of come up with your favorite metrics or, or whatever. But in the end, what we always say in our group is the single most important thing is to underwrite and vet the sponsor. And so if you have a few that you know, like, and trust, then you don't have to dig into them anymore. I found it, uh, the, the, I've got kind of a uh, investment criteria because the, the, the problem that I used to run into is the shiny object syndrome. I mean, I see so many different things I can invest in and I run out of money before I read all these cool things to invest in. So I was like, okay, I have to have investment criteria so that it's really easy to separate out. And so I kind of look for things. A 15% minimum annual return is one thing. 
But I also look for, you know, an asset where the, the sponsor has a track record of returning capital quickly, a track record or a plan to get my capital back quickly. Uh, I like appreciating assets and uh, something that has a built-in tax advantage. So, you know, if you're looking at real estate appreciation, you've got the built-in tax advantage of depreciation and has to be something that you can use leverage against. This gets back to those categories on the hierarchy, you know, so I'm not so if you if somebody said, "Hey, I've got a, you know, I've got a portfolio of case tractors and backhoes and stuff like that." I'd go depreciating asset. No, nope, not interested, right? Now, I do have a couple of exceptions, you know, if I'm trying to solve a particular tax problem that maybe I created for myself, so then I'll I'll deviate from that because I I've got this one thing I want to solve or I mentioned asymmetric returns things. If I'm, you know, I'm making small investments that fall outside of that because it's a swing for a fence kind of thing. We'll finish up with the uh, the final question, which is, what is a great one or two podcasts that you that you listen to? Well, besides passive investing from left field, uh, I've kind of got a whole bunch of, but there's a handful that are just there all the time, and that would be the Real Estate Guys Radio, the Rich Dad Radio Show, and Tom Wheelwright's Wealthability. Those are kind of my three staples, and there are a whole bunch of other ones, but those are kind of the, the rock solid ones that are in there all the time. That's great. Yeah, those are on my list too. And I appreciate the shout out for passive investing from left field. I always like yeah. to hear that. No, you guys are doing a great job. Well, thank you. And we really appreciate you being on. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, if you want to uh, see what I'm doing and hear me or see me pontificate on stuff like this, you can go to theprolificinvestor.net. And uh, there's, a, there's kind of a, a, a multiple step process to interact with me. I've got a conventional wisdom quiz that you can take. It's 10 questions and you take that quiz and that'll email you your answers and my answers and then why they're different if they are. And then uh, if, that, if you're interested in that, you can schedule a 30 minute free virtual coffee with me and we can talk about anything you want related to uh, you know finances and investing. And then I do have a, an alternative investment mentoring program. And if people are interested in working with me on an ongoing basis, uh, I can give them some information about that. So Fantastic. I will definitely put all that in the show notes and uh, we appreciate you being on with us and we hope to do it again soon. Okay. Thanks, Jim. It's a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was a great conversation with Chris Odegaard. It's interesting to talk to people like him. You know, he's on a similar path as to me. He invested in traditional standard investments for over 30 years and then Something happened and he found real estate. And so he went into the single family homes, multifamily, he was an active investor. And then he found passive, in, passive investing. And that sent him on his journey to where he is now that he overcame his, what he calls illiquidity event and ended up with more wealth that he built after it just from doing, taking a different approach and doing alternative investments. You know, we also have a similar mindset in trying to build a community with what we're doing here at Left Field Investors and what he's doing at the prolific investor, trying to just help people find find out how to invest in alternative investments and, and to help them along the way and help other people build the kind of wealth so you can get to the financial freedom you're looking for. He's a thoughtful guy. You know, he's talking about the drawbacks of traditional investing, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and the, and the benefits of investing in real assets that produce produce income, which is what we're also looking into. He developed his hierarchy of investors based on the uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I thought that was really interesting. And you know, we always we talk a lot about leverage and the importance of it, and, and he talked about that as well. But he also talked about insurability and how most of the assets that we invest in in our world, you know, in left field, 
are insurable. But if you go to your broker uh, when you're investing in the stock market or bonds, none of that is insurable. And I just thought that was an interesting take on that situation. And finally, I really liked his example of the 401k and how a young person, even with a match, if they get matched 50%, they can take that same money invested in a single family home and with all the tax benefits, all the leverage, all those other things that you're doing, the single family home is gonna win almost every time. So I really like his mindset. I like his ideas and, and how he presents things. It was a really great conversation. And I know that uh, the prolific investor in left field investors are going to work together in the future. So it was a great conversation with Chris, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com, or you can send me an email jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.